Hello, my name's Jonathan Getz, and this is Phonicle, a podcast devoted to sharing true life stories, both big and small, told by our elders. My hope is that this podcast encourages others to ask elders in their lives to tell more stories, revealing remarkable life experiences. To learn more about Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, P-H-O-N-I-C-L-E.com. For this episode, I interviewed Dick Schiefelbush, a World War II veteran who was shot down over the Baltic Sea and spent two years in a prison camp. Since Dick's post-war achievements were just as impressive as his service time, I will split his stories into two episodes, this episode containing his stories up until the end of World War II. I now present Dick Schiefelbush, born in Osawatomie, Kansas in 1918. Dick starts with a story about how his high school offered cost-efficient entertainment during the Depression and Drought. And yes, that's Dick you hear cutting a rug partway through the story. Socially, kids didn't have the money for the usual kind of a date. So what the people did, they ran a Nickelodeon, I think they call it, into the gym. They could run the Nickelodeon without any cost to themselves or the dancers. And that's where I learned fully how to dance, which I still do. You still got it. (laughs) So you go, would you dance with girls at the Nickelodeon? That's where I met my wife. She was a good dancer because she was a kind of a tomboy and had a minor in uh, physical education. And the girls that were physical ed majors were better dancers than most of the girls at that time. Ruthie and I had lots of fun dancing. That kind of expands, you know. (laughs) Do you remember that day? Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. I was sitting in my parents' home. I was helping them take our poorly uh, insulated home and make it to a nice little retirement cottage. I was sitting there one Sunday morning listening to the radio, and it came over the radio. I was up there and an inductee in Leavenworth in six days. What I wound up being asked to do was to become a navigator. When we agreed to the other big-shot nations that we were going to go to war, they assigned the U.S. of A. some of the worst combat areas in the world, like (laughs) bombing Nazi Germany (laughs) and going to foreign countries in the Pacific and all. So they needed navigators more than they needed pilots even. We were assigned to mom submarine bases all along the North Sea and and the Baltic area. That's where the submarines were. We had to get those submarines bombed. The Germans had tremendous flak and fighter attack planes. A mission was for us a, uh, a submarine base. The farthest around the corner in Europe was in Brest. France. And the one that was the farthest east was uh, Kiel. And we found out later that Kiel had both a submarine base 
and a factory, which made it the more most valuable one we took. And that was our best. But that was also the the one I was shot down on. <laughs> the thing that got us after we dropped the bombs when we swung around to go back to England, <clears throat> we ran in directly into a headwind. Well, because there were German planes that were buzzing all around us, and they eventually got us, my my plane. What happens when they get you? Well, you have to bail out over the Baltic. I bailed out at about 27,000 feet. I reasoned that I shouldn't pull it immediately because it was still in the combat zone, you know. So I waited a while. It almost tore me in two. Not, not quite. <laughs> anyway, I got down to the surface, deep, deep Baltic, cold, cold Baltic. The only thing I had that was sustaining was a, a marker buoy for shipping lanes. Apparently, I was right off of a shipping lane. Anyway, I didn't get there, and I was finally picked up by a a German fishing boat. What's going through your mind when you're there in the sea, and how long are you in there? must have been about 35 minutes, because I didn't have much left. And when the Germans got me and put me on the deck of their little boat, I couldn't even sit up. I found out later there was a kind of an unknown, unpublicized air-sea rescue series of places all the way around the North Sea and the Baltic. Operated much like a volunteer fire uh, service, you know. They'd see or hear the alarms and maybe see a parachute or two out there and out they'd go, you know. It took two rather experienced nurses five hours to get me back to normal. What did they do? First of all, they tried to get me a little bit warmer. Then they began to hurry up my breathing. And then they began to try to quiet my convulsions. And finally, I began to warm up a bit. And finally, at the end of all of that, I had the worst or the best, whichever you want to call it, feeling of euphoria of my entire life. Never felt quite like that again. Right after that, they put me in solitary confinement. So what's solitary confinement like? Well, it's all right, except you're sleeping on a table. (laughs) Well, I had a break on that. (laughs) The guard that came to see me said, You lucky Kriegi. Kriegi is for Kriegski Fangen. (laughs) For you, the war is over. (laughs) Turns out this poor joker was wounded on the Russian front. And he was assigned to final duty after he was recovered. And so he he wasn't hostile to me at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> we had much in common. <laughs> Would you talk a lot? Yeah, he could speak just a word or two of English, and I could speak a word or two of German. We could kind of make it. And after about two hours, he brought in a, a mattress and put on the table. Isn't that nice? You must have really charmed him. <laughs> or else he was just a nice guy deep down. Let's call it that way. After being released from solitary, Dick was sent to the prison camp Stalag Luft III in what is now western Poland. The 1963 film The Great Escape, starring Steve McQueen, James Gardner, and Richard Attenborough, depicted an escape from this camp. Dick was imprisoned at the camp for two years, however, during which time his wife Ruthie had their first child. What happened was we were assigned to rooms. Twelve guys in a big room and eight guys in a smaller room. Uh, We'd be on triple-deck bunks and a table in the middle where we could sit right if we wanted to and a light overhead if we wanted to see what we were doing. But uh, it was kind of confining. How was the food? Well, if you liked black bread and blood sausage and, and rutabagas that had been dug out of winter confinement, it, it was pretty coarse food. <laughs> we got enough food to maintain health. How did you find out your son was born? Well, we had, we had infrequent, but we did have prescription description kind of information that Ruthie could write letters. The only long wait I had was that these things were infrequent. First of all, I found out that she was pregnant. That was the harbinger. (laughs) Well, that that period of that interval of actually finding out took about Six months before I finally knew for sure. I knew when it was supposed to happen, but I didn't get confirmation for about six months. And I've often said that that's the world's record in anticipation of (laughs) long pregnancy and a long wait after I knew when he was supposed to arrive. (laughs) So did the guys congratulate you? Well, let me tell you this. There were some ugly sides to what was going on in prison camp. The biggest drama was the guys that were getting dear lieutenant letters. A lot of guys got married hurriedly while they were in combat training. And I must say there were very large aggregate of attractive girls who were willing participants. And so the guys would get to prison camp and Some of them, I mean, it would happen within at least just a few months they'd get a dear lieutenant letter explaining why they were no longer wanting to be married and um, it's heavy duty. So we had developed a procedure for these guys to maintain morale. We had to console them and have parties. So we began to develop procedures for developing our own hooch. Creaky brew, we called it. The party would last 
no longer than two hours. It took longer than that for the guys to recover from the sudden exposure to improper drinking. <laughs> that, was, that was a feature of prison. We got a chance to do a number of things under our own officers. That was part of the Geneva Convention aspect of it. This colonel suggested that I teach a course, which I did. I had, at that time, some background in both college and high school that enabled me to be a teacher. You know, What I taught was various formats of public speaking, which I thought would be a good subject because when they went back, they might be chairing meetings or holding meetings or testifying or whatever you do. Once I got over some of my own post-traumatic stress things, I was a fairly good teacher. (laughs) Another thing I did with my help of my former students was to do an undercover news service to the guys because all we were getting was the news from the Russian front by the Germans. So we weren't getting much of the real poop, you know. So until we found by using a souped-up walkie-talkie, we could get it from Luxembourg Radio, the news. That was what we were distributing. How would you distribute the news? Well, well, first of all, we would get it. We had a couple of guys that had been guys that could take things down in what we then called shorthand and uh, then translated into a script. They'd take the script directly to the colonels, and if it was real hot, they, they would not release it until it was at least superficially known because they were afraid we'd prattle about it. The Germans would realize that we were getting news they weren't giving us. (laughs) I did that for 14 months, and the thing that interrupted it was that eventually the Russians began to get back into the action. They were coming at the Germans from the east, you know, even to the point where we could hear the cannon fire. And Hitler didn't want us to get apprehended and released by the <laughs> Russians. <laughs> he marched us out of there. The prisoners marched from Stalagluf three prison camp lasted three days before they boarded boxcars that carried them for another three days to Stalag 7A, Germany's largest prisoner of war camp. At the time of the liberation that Dick describes, the camp held more than 75,000 prisoners. They realized there wasn't enough food to feed the prisoners, and so they allowed a limited amount of scrounging to happen. They called it the Articles of War, and if you'd go there and volunteer to go out and pledge you know, that you were coming back. You could go. I did that three times. And what it amounted to, I would I would run a little bit, get a, beyond the scope of the camp, and I'd have 
kind of a freelance uh, advantage in begging. So I would go up to them and be honest and say we were in a nearby prison camp and we needed food pretty desperately. These nice ladies, you know, in turn, would go to a manure pile and get some, or someplace like that, and get things they'd buried in the ground, you know, that couldn't be frozen. Then they'd have to cover them. But uh, rutabagas, turnips, and they also had a few things in the kitchen that they gave out, like bread in small quantities. I would have to say that they were very charitable. They knew our plight, and that's why they helped us. And I'd carry all I could handle back, and and we'd start dividing it up among people close by my room. You know, it was there that I had the most ugly experience of my life. There was a little road that went along, and one of the places that I had stopped to beg for food had a little small park right in front of the house where I went. We could see what was happening on the road. And while I was at one of the houses, we saw going by some Hitler marched prisoners of war, not Americans, not British, but uh, you can guess what their nationality was. They were on the way to the death chamber. Two weeks before the armistice there in Germany, they were still being exterminated. That ugly. Anyway, when we got finally rescued from the tanks, we saw the tanks on the hillside. And <laughs> there were some bullets exchanged, and we had to have little trenches. That lasted about 40 minutes, I guess. And then we got tanks going by, and they were throwing bread out to us and the war was over. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Phonicle. If you have an elder in your life that would like to share their stories for potential use in a future episode, please email me at listen at phonicle.com. For more episodes of Phonicle, visit phonicle.com, where you can also sign up for new episode email alerts. Thanks.